early this morning, huh? Hope everybody's doing okay. Everybody's a little sleepy. Thinking of all of you at our 95th campus and our Bolingbrook. Hi, folks. And Wheaton and Hobson. This is always an interesting Sunday morning. And I, if you can stay awake, I'm tired. So if you fall asleep, I might fall asleep. So let's all do our best to, to engage because God has something for us. This could be life-altering for you. I know God has touched my life through these parables we're about to study. Do you remember this whole series is a study of the parables Jesus taught on grace? Because grace can change everything. It's this dynamic from another planet, another world. It's not native to planet Earth. It's from the heart of God. And this foreign concept, when it gets into our minds and hearts and changes the way we see everything, it'll change our lives. Last week we learned that we are saved by grace. That our reconciliation to God is not based on a merit system. You don't earn it. You are given this free gift if you cry out in faith to Jesus Christ. And today we're learning that we are defined by grace. Who we are is determined by grace. I wanted to start by showing you this doll. Uh, Let me, I just gave, there we go. Uh, So this doll, uh, cute little doll, wouldn't you say? Um, It served me as a illustration uh, back, I don't know, 10 years ago for Christmas. I was actually looking for a Jesus doll. I wanted, uh, you know, Jesus is in his birth. I wanted to have it wrapped in swaddling cloth. So I went to my daughter's room. Uh, my daughters were uh, just little girls at that time. And as such, they loved their dolls. And so I went through their doll box and I realized this is a sensitive matter. I better get this right. Because if I take and use one of the dolls that they don't want me to, I'm in big trouble. Uh, some of their dolls, they were like, Dad, don't touch it. It's my precious doll. And so I'm like, all right. My, they were, my wife had the kids away at the moment, so I had to make this judgment call with my own knowledge of their dolls. And I had a pretty good knowledge. I knew. I'm like, all right, that's Janae's doll. No touching that. That one Jorah loves. No touching that. And then I found this pathetic looking thing. And I said to myself, that'll work. I know. I have never once seen my girls playing with this doll. And so I said, this is the one. Now, a little awkward because clearly it was a girl doll with flowers on the outfit, but I'm like, well, I'm going to wrap it in swaddling claws, so that won't be a problem. And then the second thing was that it had long hair. So I gave it a haircut. I I had never uh, done that, but I'm like, this will be fun. I mean, I'll give it a go from a girl's cut to a boy's cut and trim, trim, trim. And yeah, it didn't go well at all. If you want to put up on the screen here, the it just was a complete fail, and I was embarrassed and going, oh, this is a disaster. And right as I'm trying to fix it and I'm trimming this doll's hair, my wife and the kids come home. Now, it went well at first. Jorah was like, what did you do? And I'm like, sorry, are you okay? She's like, I don't care. Janae was like, I don't care. Do you see it coming? My wife was like, no! Jenny! It turns out that my wife, Jennifer, when she was four years old, her mom and she were in a toy store, and this doll was in a box, and its name was Jenny. And her mom had bought her this doll, and this was my wife's favorite doll. I felt so bad, and my wife was so mad. 
Oh my, still 10 years later, as I pulled out this doll to tell you this illustration, Jenna's like, I cannot believe you destroyed Jenny, you know, and boy, the anger. There's a moral to this story, and I'd like to share, actually, there's many morals to the story, but one of them that I'd like to convey is this. As I stood at that box, I was appraising the value of a doll, and what I learned is if Jorah doesn't think it's worth anything, and Janae doesn't think it's worth anything. That doesn't matter. The only opinion that matters is the one to whom the doll belongs. And if you aren't aware, we're in the appraisal business all the time. We are appraising the value of people, and us, appraising our own value. And there's a lot of opinions on the matter, but I'm here to tell you, the only opinion that counts is the one to whom you belong. And if you're a Christian, you've been bought with a price. The very shed blood of Jesus Christ was paid to buy your freedom. And the Bible says we belong to the Lord. And as the ones who are created by God and saved by God, we are owned by God. And he he alone can define who we are and what we are worth. And as we're about to discover God defines us by grace. So Jenny's going to watch the sermon from there. All right, you ready? Friends, we are turning to arguably the most precious chapter in the Bible. If you were on a stranded island and only had one chapter of the Bible, you could make a case that this is the one you want. Luke chapter 15 starts in this way. Sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. He seemed to attract them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? And then Jesus told them this parable. So Jesus turns to a story, you know, as we're finding out in this series. Jesus loved turning to parables. Complex theological problems. Jesus said, let me tell you a story. Jesus realized the power of story, of cutting to the heart and taking theological truth and boom, impacting us in profound ways. And that's what he does here. What's the problem he's addressing? These Pharisees are appraising the value of this group called sinners. And the Pharisees have determined they're not worth anything. I wouldn't associate with them. I wouldn't eat with them. And the Pharisees are concluding they're not worth anything based on a merit system. You know, merit is you are what you earn. And if you make something of yourself, well, then you are something. And spiritually speaking, these sinners are a train wreck. And because spiritually they haven't accomplished anything, the Pharisees conclude they don't matter. And Jesus steps in there and he's like, you guys don't get it. You don't understand. The value of people is not based on the merit system. It's based on the grace system. And so he steps in to tell a parable. And not just a parable, as we're about to see. Jesus like goes, boom, boom, boom. Three, a trilogy of parables back to back, driving home the point of how scandalously precious we are to God, even though we are such a mess. Uh, These three parables, maybe you've heard of them. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And so let's take a look at them together, shall we? The first is the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 4. 
Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Interesting story. Separate is finds one lost sheep, goes after it, finds it, joyfully brings it back. And then Jesus goes on to say, I tell you the truth, when one sinner repents, when someone far from God realizes the problem and trusts in the Lord's mercy and grace and finds forgiveness and reconciliation with God, Jesus goes on to say, there is a party in heaven among the angels and the Lord that would blow your mind. It's interesting, this party in heaven and God's joy in reconciling people to himself is repeated in all three of these parables. It's like the same main point. God so loves broken people that when they are reconciled to him, woohoo, there is a celebration in heaven. And though the main point is the same in all three of these parables, they're different. And those differences are significant because I think they point out different nuances to how treasured and valuable we actually are to God. And the the nuance that this parable brings out that I want to highlight is that we are known. See the word known? We are known by God. Imagine a hundred sheep and only one is missing. You would assume the shepherd wouldn't even notice that. I mean, 99 white fluffy balls looks a lot like 100, you know? And when one goes missing, we wouldn't notice. But one of the things that people were shocked by shepherds in that ancient world is how well they knew each of their sheep. Uh, It was just kind of a known fact that those shepherds, in fact, uh, they named their sheep. Do you know that? Uh, They knew them so well. Jesus actually alluded to this when he said that he was like a good shepherd. In John 10, 3, Jesus says, A good shepherd calls each of his sheep by name. And the shepherds in the ancient world, not so much today because different systems of farming are used, but in the ancient world, a shepherd lived with his sheep 24-7 outdoors, sleeping on the ground among them. And when you spend that much time, even with a sheep apparently, you start to recognize little physical differences between them, uh, the way they walk, the way they behave, the sound of their call as they call out. Uh, It's kind of like identical twins. Have you ever seen identical twins? And upon first meeting them, you're like, I'll never be able to tell them apart. They are identical. And then I did this once. I worked with two identical twins for a number of years. And after a while, the differences became obvious to me. I'm like, yeah, that's Tom and that's Brian. You know, and uh, friends, like, apparently it's the same with the sheep. And when a shepherd lost one, not only did he notice one was missing, but he knew which one was missing. He would say, where's old Graybeard? You know, he was around here a minute ago, but he's missing. And the shepherd knew even the one out of a hundred. And God's trying to convey to us that I know you may feel like in such a big world, does an individual really matter to the Lord? Uh, There are 7.7 billion people in the world. Does God know and care about the individual? He does. Friends, even though you feel like a face in the crowd, even though you are a face in the crowd, 
The parable of the lost sheep tells you, you are known to God. I'll never forget when I was 12 years old, uh, I wanted, a, I was during the summer, we're off of school, and my buddy and I just wanted an adventure. Maybe it was Ferris Bueller's day off that led to this, I'm not sure. But we came to my mom and, and said, hey, we'd like to ride our bikes down to the train station in Arlington Heights and take the train into Chicago and spend the day downtown. My mom said, sure. I would never have said sure, but that's what she did. And so my buddy and I rode our bikes. We got on the train. We felt like such adults as we're paying for our train ticket, sat in the upper deck of the train. We were just so excited. But that train turned out to be like a tunnel into another world. Stepping off that train at rush hour freaked me out. Here's a picture of what it looked like. I mean, have you done this? I got off that train. I'm all these big, tall business adults walking swiftly, you know, and my friend and I are just like smashed, you know, I I suppose like sheep. You ever seen sheep in a, you know, a crowd going through a gate, you know, it's just like a, a stream of humanity. And my friend and I didn't know where to go, but we just decided just follow everybody, you know, and there was no other option to be honest. And we just followed everybody and up those escalators and out. And suddenly we were outside, but even out on the sidewalks, it was just a stream of fast-moving humanity and buildings so tall, I never felt so small. You get out into millions of people, and you realize how small you are. And with that sense of smallness, it is so tempting to conclude, there's no way God cares about me. There's no way he's aware about me. I know you felt this. This thought of God being 24-7, all focused in on you. We struggle to believe that. You know why? Because we put the limitations we have on God. You know, we have a limited amount of bandwidth. If you've got seven kids, you struggle because, you know, you're trying to give your attention and love and focus to seven kids. And You've got limits. You have to divide it between them, and that's the best you can do. So we kind of assume the same of God. But friends, God is not like us in that way. God is infinite. There's a word omnipresent that comes from Scripture, and theologians coined the term. But omnipresent means God can be everywhere at once. And it's hard for us to imagine this, but God's limitlessness allows him to give us his undivided attention all day. To 7.7 billion people, he can give his undivided attention simultaneously to everybody. And he's into it. Believe it or not, every day, he's like, all right, I'm looking at you. Wake up. Come on, wake up. We got a day to live here. And God is watching and curious about how you handle every moment, every thought, every word, every deed. You're like, God is not, he doesn't care about Friends, Jesus said in Luke 12, 7, that God knows how many hairs you have on your head. He is interested in peculiar details about you that you're not interested in. You know, he knows you. He made you. And so those uniquenesses about you, what you love, what you hate, what you're good at, what you're bad at, what you're interested in, the Lord is so into the uniquenesses of you in your life. He knows you better than you would ever dream. So enjoy it. Believe it. 
Live in it. You know, as you go to bed, don't assume, oh, God, I know you're out there somewhere, but obviously you're into more significant things than this moment. And the Lord, no, I'm here. Say good night to me. Say good morning to me. Let's do this day together. Though you may be one in a hundred sheep, you are known and loved by the Father. So that's the first thing that we draw is even though we feel like a face in the crowd, we are known by God. Let's go to the second point. The second parable is the parable of the lost coin found in verse 8. Jesus says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. It's a good story. You know, one of the things you should know is that when it says silver coins, the actual uh, Greek word is drachma. It's kind of like, you know, we would say a quarter or a dime. It was like drachma, amount of money. It doesn't say a drachma because that word would be meaningless to us, so the translators use silver coin. But you need to know that a drachma was worth a day's wage. So for us, in our modern day, it'd be like over a hundred bucks. And so this is a lot of money. When when the parable says she has ten, what most think is that Jesus was conveying that she's got like a thousand dollars. That is her life savings. And if that's her life savings and she loses a hundred bucks, this is a big deal to that woman. And the big deal is seen by her diligent search. I mean, she's sweeping and lighting. You may, it may seem odd, you know, a big silver coin. Why is it so hard to find it? It's right on the floor there. Normally, you know, we would be able to find a silver coin that fell on our carpeting or our wood floors or tile. But in the ancient world, the floors weren't like that. In Jesus' day, ordinary people had pounded earth floors. That's right, mud floors. Uneven and cracked. Floors would have lots of dirt and debris. And so when a coin fell, it could fall into a crack. And dust would go up, it'd get all dirty, half covered with debris. Uh, and, and you should know that there was no electricity in those days to turn on the lights. And the windows were very small, so the ground was just not seen in the low light. That's why she had to light a lamp trying to get down and say, I know it's down here. I'm going to find it. So put yourself in the uh, feet, if you will, of that coin, because that's the idea here is that God is that woman and we are that coin. The coin, it's in a terrible circumstance. It's in certain debris. It's down where it's getting stepped on and kicked. And it would be easy to assume from the coin's perspective that I don't matter, looking at my surroundings. But the woman says, no, you matter. I know that it's just dirt and debris down there, but there's treasure if you have eyes to see, and I'm going to find it. And friends, we, we find ourselves in circumstances that could make us feel like we're trash. We find ourselves in hardship and in a lack of success and with people who step on us or kick us. And the circumstances tend to make us feel like we are, we're just debris, we're dirt, we're trash. But the parable of the lost coin says, oh, you are treasured by God. Do you see the word treasured? 
Friends, this parable is saying, as you evaluate really what you're with, be careful to look at your environment, your circumstances, and conclude based on them what you're worth. Because others may step on you and kick you and not even see you, but the Lord sees what they don't see. And that's that you are treasured. Picture that woman holding the coin, calling to her friends, saying, let's have a party, just as God has a party in heaven. Friends, you are treasure. Let me share a, a little more of my uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off adventure in the city, shall I? So we, we were, uh, me and my buddy, out on the streets of Chicago, and we had so much fun exploring, went down by the river. And then um, we decided to do what my mom had suggested. She had said, you know, while you're down there, you should swing by and see your father at work. And uh, my dad, it was easy to find his place of employment. He worked in the Sears Tower. Here's a picture of the Sears Tower. You may know about the Sears Tower, that there's an entrance where people who are going up to the sky deck, you know, uh, visitors go in. And then there's a business entrance. And so we went in the business entrance because we were trying to find my father at work. Well, Picture it. I mean, all these business-dressed people, and here come two 12-year-old boys with their rumpled T-shirts and their faded jeans with holes in them, you know. Immediately, a security guard came over to us and said, boys, get out of here. And he turned us and walked us out of the building. And I'm like, wow, we were just kicked out of the Sears Tower. And we're standing on the curb, and my friend is like, why didn't you tell him we're there to meet with your dad? I'm like, I don't know. I was... So flustered, he goes, come on, let's do it again. So we come in a second time, and the security guard is like ticked this time. And he, I told you boys to get up. And I'm like, we're here to meet with my dad. My dad works here. We're here to meet with him. And he didn't believe us. He's like, oh, is that right? He's like, what's your dad's name? And I said, Gary Griffin. And he says, uh, what company does he work for? And I said, Griffin, Cubic, Stevens, and Thompson. And he's like, I want to make a call. And so he calls us, brings us over to this counter in the lobby, and he takes a phone, and he calls my dad's company, and he says, there's a young man here claiming to be the son of Gary Griffin, says Gary's expecting him. I loved when all of a sudden his facial expression changed. He's like, oh, oh, okay then. Uh, Very good. Well, I will uh, escort him up. And uh, and he hung up the phone, and he turned to us, and he said, uh, gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen, <laughs> gentlemen, uh, I apologize for the misunderstanding. Please follow me. And we're like, yeah, you know. <laughs> and we followed this guy. He brought us this fancy elevator and pushed the button for us and escorted us up. Wasn't that fun? Friends, when your environment is telling you, I'm going to kick you to the curb. You don't matter. Don't listen to them. Call the Father and say, you tell me what I'm worth. Yeah, that coin, you know, in the dust and debris didn't feel like much. But when that woman found it and treasured it, she saw the value no one else could see. And friends, uh, that's how it is with God. You got to call him and say, Lord, you tell me. Because I'm concluding from everything circumstantially in my life that I'm pretty much a joke. But you tell me. And through the Bible, like passages like this one, and through his spirit speaking to your mind and heart, God will reinforce and say, hey, listen, I made you. I sent Christ to die for you. 
You are my treasured son or daughter. And then you could say, tell me that again. And tell me that again. And you got to meditate on this truth because the world 24-7 is screaming otherwise. And so if we're going to have a biblically-based self-perception, we've got to ask God to repeat it one more time until it begins to seek in and affect the way we see ourselves. All right, so we are known, we are treasured, and then one more parable, and that is the parable of the lost son. You may have known it by the parable of the prodigal son, very famous parable of Christ, and a long one, and so long, in fact, that you're going to have to allow me to summarize it, and then we'll dive into some important verses in it. The parable goes like this. There's his father, and he's got two boys, and he's apparently wealthy because one of the boys says to the dad, I want my inheritance now, which is kind of like saying, I wish you were dead, and I'm tired of waiting for you to die, so I'm just going to ask, give me my money now so I can get out of here. I mean, spitting in his father's face. Surprisingly, in this parable, the father says, okay. Divides up half of all he has, gives it to the boy. The boy takes it to the big city. The boy wastes, squanders all of his dad's hard-earned money in what's called wild living. The morally depraved lifestyle that the father was against is precisely how his son squanders all of his hard-earned money. And the boy eventually loses, you know, he had some friends when he had money, but when he runs out of money, he loses his friends. When he runs out of money, he loses his home. He gets desperate. The only job he can find is working for a pig farmer, and he is covered with slop, and it's just disgusting smells, and he's so desperate that the pig food's starting to look good to him. And at that point, he says, you know what? I love this. The Bible says when he came to his senses, he said, what am I doing? I got to go back to my dad. I, I know he won't accept me as a son, and he'll probably tell me to get out, but just maybe he'll give me a job in the lowest position possible. Because I'm telling you, being in the lowest position working for my dad would be infinitely better than what I have now. I got to try. And so this boy sets out on the road, headed back home. And you can imagine his nervousness as he's like, oh, this is going to be ugly. He sees his house in a distance, and as he gets closer, his heart's pounding, his palms are sweating. He goes, when he sees me after what I've done to him, he is going to come and give me his mind, and it's going to be ugly. And so he's just bracing himself. Verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Isn't that amazing? In those verses, the heart of God towards spiritual failures is revealed in startling description. When he was still a long way off, the father is longingly scanning the horizon as he has every day, hoping for the return of his son. And when on this day he can't believe he sees him, to our shock, The father saw him and was filled with compassion. Love wells up in his heart for the boy. And he ran. This is a father symbolizing God. So God ran to you. Isn't that amazing? 
Now, I imagine the boy, when he saw his dad running, he's like, oh, boy, he's going to clobber me, you know. But no, that's not it at all. What does the dad do? Throws his arms around him, picks him up in a bear hug, and just says, oh, my boy, kisses him and says, oh, son, you don't know how much I love you. Amazing. That's grace. And friends, even when you feel like a spiritual failure, you got to know you are loved by God. Even though you've done it a thousand times when you told God you wouldn't do it anymore and you're just disgusted with your own failure to live up to what you know God's calling, when you repent, you just got to know this is how God feels about you. These words are so powerful that I have this peculiar habit, and it's weird, but you may want to try it because I think it's what God wants us to do. I'll just tell you. I imagine this scene with me in it and God in it. I did this last night. A lot of times when I go to bed, I'll just take two minutes. I have a vivid imagination. Maybe you do as well. Let's use them. And imagine this. Say, okay, here I am. I I am the pig slop coated failure of a son standing there on the road. God, you know, here he comes. Here he comes. He's coming for me. And I feel the embrace of God and the warmth of his kisses as he says, Jeff, you're my boy. I love you. And you say, that's kind of weird, Jeff. You're kind of into yourself, aren't you? No, I'm not into myself. I'm just facing the facts. This is the biblical facts. Do you want to live with reality or some uh, distorted version of it? If you're interested in reality, this is it. So meditate on it again and again until you enjoy the love of God. Because this is his revealed truth through Jesus Christ, his son, who came to tell us how it was. Uh, Interestingly, uh, this Father goes on. He calls a servant over. Look at verse 22. Quick, the father says, bring the best robe and put it on my boy. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but he's alive again. Isn't that amazing? Uh, Think about how badly this guy needed that royal robe. I mean, look at his clothes. He was all tattered, and his clothing had not been washed in months, and there was pig slop on it. It was disgusting. He he looked less than human. But when that royal robe was wrapped around him, he stood a little higher. The father was conveying his true identity in his eyes. When the father puts a ring on his finger, that was significant back then. They called them signet rings. Just as I wear a wedding ring symbolizing my connection to my wife, so back then they had a family ring. It had a family emblem engraved on it. It was like an ID card. When you wore the ring, it proved you were part of the family. And so when he put the ring on him, the father was saying, servant business? No, you have full rights and privileges as my son. Friends, this is what God says to us. When he says, kill the fattened calf, it's the father saying, hey, we're going to eat in celebration, but we're not going to have peanut butter and jelly. We're going to have the best of the best because that's how much I love you. 
um, when I went to visit my dad, are you ready for this? So the elevator opens on the, their floor, and there's this Griffin Cubic Stevens and Thompson and metal on a marble wall. I mean, it's so fancy, and here we are in our T-shirt and jeans and just feeling very awkward, and this receptionist says, are you Jeff Griffin? Yes, I am. And she says, follow me. Your dad is expecting you. I go, and I, and I follow her around this corner into this big room filled with busy bond salespeople doing their work. And I'll never forget when my father saw me from across the room. I mean, this is when I was 12, but I remember like it was yesterday. His face lit up. And he popped up and hung up the phone. And he walked to me and he's like, Jeff! And grabbed me and picked me up, just like in the prodigal son. Put his arm around my boy, and he just celebrated us. I felt like a million bucks. And then my dad says, let's eat lunch together, just like the the prodigal son. And I expected McDonald's. My dad's like, I'm taking you guys to the Metropolitan Club. Uh, Here's a picture. This is a private club on the top of the Sears Tower. Back then, my dad was a member of it. And I'm like, Dad, Dad, you don't need to do that. And he's like, I insist, come on. And so we go up there, and I'm looking around. Everybody's, you know, dressed to the the nines. And I'm like, oh, boy, Dad, I don't think we have a proper. And he's like, you know what? You're right. They have a rule that you must have a sport coat to dine here. He calls over the host. Hey, Charlie. Yes, Mr. Griffin. Charlie, can you uh, line my boys up with some sport coats? And he's like, let me see what I can do, Mr. Griffin. And he goes back into this courtroom, coat room, and he comes back with these sport coats. And I'll never forget, slipping that baby on, my shoulders got twice as wide in one moment. Felt like a million bucks. We sauntered over to our table and sat down, and we had a glorious meal of fattened calf, if you know what I mean. Friends, uh... It's good to be loved by the Father. Do you enjoy it? Let me show you the review slide here, can we? Uh, the, the parable of the sheep tells us, even though you feel like a face in the crowd, even though it seems like with 7.7 billion people, God has no knowledge or interest in you, it's not true. You are known. Every detail to the hairs on your head, you are known by God. Parable of the lost coin. You are treasure. Even though it seems like you're getting kicked and stepped on and your environment would seem to say that you're trash, you are treasured by Almighty God. Parable of the lost son. Even though you are a spiritual failure to an impressive degree, you are dearly loved by Almighty God. It's who you are. You know, we, we, we've sung a song that is, I am who you say I am. I love that song because it just reminds us that what other people say we are, what our circumstances seem to indicate, those voices don't count. The only voice that counts is your owner. And so turn to God and say, I am who you say I am. Know it. Believe it. Live it. Enjoy it. Let's pray. God, uh, this is tough, Lord, this self-perception thing. We're all messed up. I think I can say that with confidence. We're all messed up. And we need your truth, your perspective. Thank you for these three parables. It's one thing to study them. It's another thing to meditate on them, to see it that way, to believe it. 
and to enjoy it. And God, that's what we want to do. So help us hear your voice speaking through your word, your voice speaking through your spirit in the days ahead. Help us say, I am who you say I am. And help us live it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.